This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to episode 256 of literary treks your dedicated star trek books and comics show here on the trek fm network i'm just one of your hosts dan gunther and with me as he usually is is the wonderful uh i'm not gonna say Riker to my troy or troy to my Riker because we don't quite have that relationship but it's bruce gibson bruce how's it going I'm doing well, Dan. You know, in the literary universe, you are my Imzadi. Ah, I, I, I don't know if I feel the same. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. We're, uh, we haven't watched it yet, but in the universe that you guys are listening to this to, the first episode of season two of Discovery has already aired. So, uh, it was great. It was okay. I hated it. Pick when, which one of those uh, you think that we would say. And uh, yeah, that'll be the reality. <laughs> I think it would be rare if you ever heard me say I hated a Star Trek episode of anything. I might not care for one all that much, but I'm, I don't think I'd ever hate one. Yeah, I, there are very few. Maybe There's maybe one that I would say I hate. But other oh. than that. Can I guess I, what it is? I don't know if you'll be able to. Oh, well, then, I get, then it's probably not what I think it is. I was going to say it's that one that should never be named of Enterprise when it ended. Oh, I actually don't even hate that. I'm okay. not a fan of it, but I wouldn't say I hate it. Okay. Well, now you have to tell us. All right. Well, it is uh, Fury in Voyager's, I want to say, sixth season where Kess comes back and she's all mean and horrible. And I hate that episode. I really dislike it. You know, I haven't watched that episode since it originally aired. Now I'm going to do that. <laughs> ah, it just, it just craps all over her character. I don't like it at all. Yeah, anyway. I remember not caring that much for it. I thought it was a little odd for her character. Yeah. But yeah, I, now that you mention it, like I said, I think the last time I watched it was just the original airing. I don't think I've ever watched it again. So now I'm going to. Thank you. You gave me something to do this weekend. Awesome. Well, I'm I'm glad I could do that. Well, one thing that we had to do this week was read a new comic that had come out, and I trust that both of us have done that. Uh, so we're going to be talking about 
issue number six of the TNG Terra Incognita miniseries. And this is the final issue of that series. So let's uh, jump over to that and give that a quick review. So first of all, Bruce, what are your thoughts on the finale to Terra Incognita? Uh, So my thoughts on this is that I like how this series played out. In a lot of ways, you could read issue one and issue six and be okay. It almost feels as if then issues two through five are separate stories that are just sandwiched in between. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's I like instead of getting a two-parter where it's in one issue and then the follow-ups to the story is in the next issue, why not have other stories take place and then that part two happens sometime later? Because not everything happens all at the same time. So I like mm-hmm. that we have uh, the Mir Barkley start off in issue one and he's up to his hijinks of being on the Enterprise and kidnapping the prime Barkley. And then we see him throughout other missions, but we're seeing those stories play out for their missions. They're not centered around Barkley. They're centered around other characters. And Solar, for example, is a really good one because we don't see all that much of her character. And now we end the series picking up basically where we left off in issue one. It's just, we had all these missions take place in between. Yeah. The series was definitely a bit of an enigma with a lot of unconnected stories kind of going around. But in this issue, we really kind of figure out what those were all leading to because of course in this one, because it's the finale, we have Barkley being found out and the way he's found out is that data has crossed over from the mirror universe to take him back and punish him for betraying them because he's, he remained behind in our universe. And of course, I, I think I would say this is kind of the most action-packed one. We get a firefight, you know, between Data and Worf and, you know, our crew members trying to stop Data from taking Barkley and all this stuff. And we get what I thought was a bit of a surprise, an appearance from Mirror Picard, who is also crossed over uh, to help retrieve Barkley. That was kind of interesting. But yeah, this was, uh, I think, a really fun issue, bringing everything full circle. And, uh, you know, what was surprising to me was how quickly and easily the Mirror Universe people actually succeeded in getting Barkley out of our universe. And that's just kind of wrapped up, at least from our perspective over here in the Prime Universe, really quickly. I think the one thing that bothers me about these stories is how easily the mere universe characters can just come and go, mm-hmm. you know, they just beam on, they beam off. It's like, what's to say they're not going to just come back tomorrow and do something. Yeah. There was a little bit of lack of uh, explanation about that and, and kind of making that a bit too easy where I found this comic was really interesting. And what I was saying about it, kind of linking all the past stories together was all the crew members sitting around kind of reflecting on it and saying like, we, you know, we noticed Barkley had changed, but we didn't, we didn't think that he'd been replaced and we can't believe that he was able to trick us. You know, what was he up to? And they kind of review everything and realize he didn't seem to be up to anything. He was trying to fit in and be a good officer and, you know, fit into this universe. And 
in that way, I kind of felt bad for the mirror Barkley because he seemed to be just trying to escape the horrors of the mirror universe and found our universe to be just maybe a little bit better. And I would think that the prime Barkley, if he had spent time with Mir Barkley and if Mir Barkley had kidnapped him and put him in that holding cell thing or whatever it was, I think that prime Barkley may look at the Mir Barkley and say, well, he's kind of what I wish I was. He's who I want to be. You know, mm-hmm. those aspects of me that I know are possible. I'm just not there. But yeah, I do like how the crew was talking about those other missions. And that's what I like about the style of these six issues is that it's not just all wrapped up quickly in an issue or two that, you know, as we're going through the issues, we're starting to wonder, well, what about Barkley? And Barkley's been around for a while and, you know, what's going to happen with him? And then we get to this and then we go back to that whole storyline. And I also like the connection to issue number four because Barkley trying to save himself tells the mirror Picard that, well, I, I discovered something there. We can build our armada. We can have our fleet of ships because there was a planet there in the prime universe that we discovered where they're building a new armada of ships. And that mm-hmm. ties back to issue four. Yeah. I thought that was really clever. You know, Barkley kind of saving his own skin by giving Picard this great resource And that's kind of where the issue ends with Picard planning to go get his armada to take over the galaxy. And we get that little, you know, end question mark at the very end of the story, which, you know, really makes me excited and hopeful that they pick up this thread yet again and do another miniseries somewhere down the line that continues this mirror conquest story because I'd love to see that play out. Yeah. And again, I think that's what I like about the series is there's a thread, but each issue issues two through five are standalone stories Mm -hmm. that you can actually just pick up one of those issues and it feels like a traditional TNG episode. Yeah. You don't even have to read the others, but you know, when you read the others, then you see the thread. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I I would say I I really loved this series. I think it was top notch and you know, there's it wraps up I feel like a little bit quickly, but at the same time it was fascinating enough and planted seeds for what might come in the future. And I really loved how everything turned out. Yeah, I hope they do another one like this. And no, it doesn't have to be quite like this and it doesn't have to be TNG. But a six-issue series where it's not just one epic story, but individual stories with a thread between all six. Definitely. I would definitely uh, shill out some money for that, for sure. So we do want to talk about some listener feedback in the Babel Conference for Literary Treks 254, A Likely Victim. And this was kind of a different episode where we had Brandon Shemutala do an interview with author Michael Jan Friedman at the Northeast Trek Con last year. Uh, So let's see what you guys had to say about that episode. So surprise, surprise, Justin Ozer uh, posted a comment here on the thread. He says he loved the Waypoint special. It's great to have these unusual stories and he likes the comparison to short tracks uh like dan he says his favorite story was the viger entity and the spot stories 
and that the V'ger entity story was fantastic. And he agrees that Q was perfect there. And uh, the only thing that he wished for in that story was to hear from Ilea in addition to Decker. Uh, he thinks Ilea is a great character and always wanted to know what she thinks afterwards of what happened to her when she merged with Decker and V'ger. Yes, same here, Dan. I mean, Justin and Dan, same here. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. I So I still want a bigger story about Decker and Ilea and what happened to them and all that stuff. So then Justin also mentions about Spot being a wonderful story and it's adorable and moving and uh, seeing everything from Spot's perspective and how the story felt perfect to him and he looks forward to the next Waypoint special. Excellent. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And yeah, I would like to see that larger Decker Ilea story as well. So, but I, I did like what we got here for sure. Uh, Justin also compliments Brandon Shemutala on his interview with Michael Jan Friedman. And of course, for that episode, we called him a, a special correspondent, which, uh, you know, I think Jen Foley would agree. Uh, we should keep him on as a correspondent, she says. So uh, again, also praising Brandon for a great interview with Michael Jan Friedman. And I have to agree, that was a really fun interview to listen to. And I'm really glad we were able to feature that. And Lee Sargent posts that, and I'm going to read it uh, directly as he typed it onto the uh, comment section, that Shadows on the Sun is one of my favorite Trek novels of all time. I read it when I was a teen, and it really resonated with me. The imagery used within it was so vivid, for me at least. It may have been my first hardcover Trek novel. And then uh, Matt Rushing, who, of course, used to be a host here in Literary Treks, he posted that uh, same here and that uh, we did that back in the beginning of Literary Treks. And he also posted that we uh, the episode link, which was Literary Treks number episode 21. So if you want to hear about Shadows of the Sun, uh, check out episode 21 of Literary Treks. Yeah, a great episode from early in the Literary Treks days back with uh, Matt Rushing and Chris Jones. So blast from the past there. That's really cool. And have you ever read Shadows of the Sun, Dan? I actually have not. That is one that I've never read. I do have it in my collection. I have a paperback copy somewhere. So maybe I should move that up in my reading queue. Yeah, I remember it being good. I read it when it came out. Uh, so I have the hardcover version of it. So Nice. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, it's one I haven't read since then, but maybe we'll do it on the show someday. No, we already did. What am I talking yeah, about? Yeah, we can't do that. <laughs> uh, oh, well, uh, you can't. We can't do that, but oh, well, you know, maybe some other day I'll read it. So uh, what do you say we jump over to the feature, which is Star Trek The Next Generation Imzadi by Peter David? And I don't think we can really discuss this one alone. So... I think we need to bring in a special guest for this one. What do you say? I say, let's do it. So as we mentioned today in our feature, we are doing a classic Star Trek The Next Generation novel, Imzadi by Peter David. And as you all know, this involves the relationship between Riker and Troy. So I think we could not do this novel without inviting a special guest, Amy Nelson. Amy! How are you doing? Hi, I am so excited. Imzadi, Riker, Troy, it is the best. I am so grateful, honored, pleased that you even thought of me for coming on Literary Trek. So thank <laughs> you so, so much. Yeah, we're like, 
do you think there's anybody on the network that would like to talk about Deanna Troy? Hmm. hmm. I think I have hmm. corner on the market on that one. <laughs> well, I'm looking at you. We're we're speaking through, you know, our regular meeting and I'm I'm seeing the the webcam version of you and I notice these like little animated hearts just kind of keep floating yes. out of you. And I thought that was like a feature of the program you're using, but I think that's just actually happening. Yes, hearts in my eyes and just everywhere. I'm so excited. So excited. <laughs> well, and the sad thing is you really hate the book, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't know. We won't know if Amy really likes the book or not until later in the feature. That's right. Yeah. I'm just happy mm. to talk about Troy and Riker. It's a mystery. I, I don't know what your feelings about this book are at all. But uh, let's so, so let's start with that. So Imzadi uh, came out quite a few years ago. Uh, how did everyone read this? Was it an ebook? Had you read it before? Is this your first time? Amy, let's start with you. Okay, so this is actually one of the books that I own a physical hard copy of. And I did read it back in, I don't know, I'm going to say 2001, 2002. And it was just so good. And I bought it and it's sitting on my shelf at school. And so when you'd asked me over Christmas break to uh, come on the show, I was like, oh, yeah, I think I even own this book, but I didn't have access to school because we were out on holiday break. And so I was like, oh, well, I guess I'll just have to buy another copy. And then I was getting all confused. And so I messaged Bruce and I was like, hey, I found it, but it looked different than what I remembered. And so this ebook, I'm telling you guys, you are making me read things in so many different formats. And I really (laughs) do have to thank you because this is my very first experience reading an ebook. Oh, wow. If you, if listeners, if you remember when I've been on Literary Tricks before, I came on for the comics and it was my very first time reading a comic book. And I asked my students to help me read these comic books. And that was a first for me on Literary Tricks. And so now this marks another first for me reading it on my iPad, digital copy. And it was weird. I missed having the book. But I did find some conveniences of having it uh, a soft copy. So. I, I just love that we're your first on so many things. I this is know. so awesome. So that that's great. So your first ebook. Yes. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So if we're your first, does that translate as we're all your Imzadi? Is that how this goes? Because <laughs> if I recall correctly, that's what that word means. That's correct. Yes. Just in a very different context, though. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, spiritually, we're Imzadi. Yes. We're, you, your, we're your you ebook Imzadi. <laughs> okay, so you read it in 2001. Yes. And then again recently. So this was your second time reading it. Yeah. And I loved it so much that I read Imzadi 2 right after back back in the early 2000s. So I I did read both of them. But yeah, I remember loving it and just, oh, the feelings I got from reading it back in 2001, 2002 was, I I still remember it. Like it's that impactful of a read. Wow. So Bruce, how about you? Is this your first time? No, this wasn't. Uh, this was also, well, it's not my first time reading an ebook, but it was my first time reading this book as an ebook. Hmm. So I do have the physical hardcover copy, which came out 
in August of 1992 between seasons five and six, just to bring some context into when this was published, which means that Peter David would have written this probably night, you know, late 91, early 92, probably during season five. So Mm -hmm. just so we have that idea in our head as to where we were at this point, I read the hard copy. I read it again later at some point. I don't remember when, maybe a year, a couple years later. And then I also had the audio book, which I listened to. So I count that as three times. And then because I was traveling and as Amy said, for convenience sake, I went ahead and got the ebook and read it for the fourth time, but this time as an ebook, which hmm. I really wanted to read the hard copy but because I was traveling. It's just easier to have it on my device than to carry a hard copy book right. or hardcover book, I meant to say. Like you guys, uh, this is not my first time reading it. I read it actually for the first time in high school. And I remember I was on a trip at the time. And I have this very weird specific memory of reading the book because I had like three or four chapters left. I was very near the end. And I think I fell asleep while I was reading it. And I finished the book in my dreams. (laughs) I love that. I think you told me about this before. Yeah. I'm I'm pretty sure it was Imzadi. And because I remember thinking like later that day at dinner or something, I was like, that was a good book. But that ending was really weird. Like it just really took a left turn at the end there. And then that night getting into bed, flipping through, going, I I didn't read any of this. (laughs) (laughs) That's so awesome, though, that you actually were dreaming an ending to a book. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, so bizarre. Um, But and then I did read it again in 2013. uh, So fairly recently. And then of course, again, uh, for this show, and all three times was the same paperback version. So I have the uh, not the hardcover, but the reprint, the paperback version, with the coupon in the back for $2 off of Imzadi 2, if you send that into Simon and Schuster. So will they still (laughs) honor it? Because I, I think that's in the back wondering. of my soft copy as well. <laughs> I was actually wondering, and I'm sure there's an expiration date on there, but it would be neat to kind of see, huh, I should send this in and see what happens. You should just to see what happens. I might just do that. Although, yeah, I would have to cut that page out of the book, but it's just, you know, one of those pages at the back with all the ads. So shouldn't be too bad. So this is a really unique novel uh, to start out with. It's not. The, the framing story, the main story, I would say, is not set in the time period that we know and love of Star Trek The Next Generation. Instead, we meet an older Will Riker who, it's, as, as we read, it kind of becomes apparent that Deanna Troy was lost at some point in the past. And Riker at this point is an older broken man. He's an admiral, but he's in command of kind of a starbase out in the boonies His life has kind of been drifting and aimless. And Luxana Troy is dying and calls Riker to her home on Beta Zed for some reason. And we kind of follow Riker as he's making his journey to Beta Zed and remembering the life with Deanna and all this sort of stuff. How do we feel about how Riker is portrayed here and what the apparent loss of Deanna at some point in the past Uh, what that has done to him and and the kind of man he's become because of that. You know, it's interesting that you, you know, started by telling us when this book came out in between seasons. What did you say? Five and six. Five and six. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because reading that and, and hearing the description of Admiral Riker, 
just totally took me back to all good things. And I'm right. like, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah. I'm like, why is it always in the future that Deanna's dead? And it mm-hmm. just breaks my heart. And I kept having these feelings and, and it was the same Riker in the future where, you know, in all good things, Riker's very angry and upset at Worf and blah, you know, he was a broken man. And we see that so early in this book portrayed. So I just, it just, in my mind, solidifies how much they really are in Zadi because two different writers, two different time periods are portraying Riker as being a broken man without Deanna. Um, and it, it was very heartbreaking, um, again, just to realize so many people are envisioning a future without Deanna Troy. It makes me wonder, because this book was so popular at the time it came out, if the writers were inspired by that concept oh. in the book and used it for all good things. Or maybe they read this book or heard about it and didn't even realize that they borrowed the idea from the book. Um mm-hmm. I'd always reading this previously, I'd always thought, oh, that's not the case. That can't be, you know, the books never influenced that. Only a few people read the books, that sort of thing. But over, over the years, learning how popular this book is and the impact that it made, you know, we've talked to several Star Trek authors who said this book was the reason they wrote Star Trek novels. Like this was the one that got them into writing Star Trek books it kind of occurs to me that maybe this did have that that effect and maybe, you know, like you said, maybe not directly, but, you know, planted some ideas and led some people down the same path to write a similar situation. It's a ripple in the pond. It is. And when this book was published, Star Trek was at the, the height of popularity. And I remember a lot of people who you know, I'd work with or as friends with that would like to watch TNG, but they didn't really read the novels or handpick maybe one or two. But this was a novel I was always finding that people were reading that typically didn't read Star Trek novels. It was that popular. And Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I can see where it could have had some influence, maybe not. But the idea of having Riker as a broken man over uh, Deanna Troy being gone I think, you know, it just shows that he has regrets that he didn't not just save her or do anything to make sure she's still alive, but just that he never fulfilled their relationship, that they never went to that place where they were together. They always stayed apart. And I think he just has a lot of regrets to that. Yeah, it's definitely obviously something that has this huge effect on his life, even though, you know, as we learned throughout this book, it was a very... Uh, the actual romance itself was kind of very short and torrid, but it obviously had deep meaning for them. And the relationship that we see that they have throughout the TNG series, you know, they're not lovers, but they are very close. And there's obviously a huge significance to that relationship there. So it feels like, you know, something that you would possibly take for granted and not realize the impact that it has till it's gone because you know, especially since they're serving on the same ship and they see each other every day. Well, she's always going to be there. Uh, you know, I maybe someday, but not right now. It's fine. It, you know, and then all of a sudden that's ripped away from him. You can totally see how that would just devastate him and put his life into this tailspin. When I was reading this book, I really started to think about how they never got together 
in the series that the first episode encounter and Farpoint were given this backstory that, you know, they had been together. They were in Zadi, they were lovers. And then they're not together throughout this, the series. And if this book was published after season five, the fact that CBS or at that time, Paramount allowed this book to be published, the story to be told almost tells me that the writers of the show had no plans to go and explore their backstory or even explore getting these two characters together, which I really think is a missed opportunity because this book just proves how interesting of a story it would have been when you set up that situation and encounter a far point about the Mzadi plot, then go ahead and take that point and do something with it later. And they really didn't do anything. They, they dabbled it in a little bit, but they really didn't. I don't think they ever had plans to ever bringing them together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. And and you're right. They dabble like with Thomas Riker. And again, sort of that missed opportunity that we're seeing has happened in the book in Zadi, you know, and, and so, yeah, it is a shame because so many people, obviously, because the book was so successful. And I just think, well, I'm biased, I know, but you know, it is a really good storyline. And I think it's very relatable because so many people can relate to, oh, there was this opportunity and then I didn't take that chance, you know. And I think that this book really explores that and and makes Riker so relatable. Like you just understand him at a deeper level because you understand you have all the backstory of the series of how important his career is you know, and sort of to see that she's willing to, you know, maybe put her career on hold to give it a shot, but he's not willing to, you know, and it's that sort of is echoed through the series as well. So we go from this story of Riker in the far future and we kind of, uh, through a flashback, he's remembering kind of how the relationship started and, and where it all began so we flash back to Beta Z when Riker and Troy first meet. And I thought this was kind of fun because they meet for the first time or Riker sees her for the first time at a Betazoid wedding. And the, as we all know, as Star Trek fans, Betazoid weddings, there's a very specific suit that you wear to a Betazoid wedding and it is your birthday suit. <laughs> you are naked. The guests, the people getting married, everybody is naked. So... Obviously, that's the kind of humorous playground that Peter David excels at. So he's going to write that scene. And we kind of get these two meeting for the first time. And this is something that when I read it before, I hadn't really gotten my head around. I didn't really see it in these terms. Reading it now, some of the stuff that happens during this part, I'm going to say, uh, It's a little problematic, maybe a little questionable, Um, especially, you know, and I hate to say it in the post Me Too movement era and that sort of thing. Some stuff that I was kind of surprised that I didn't recognize when I was younger. And now that I'm a little older, I'm like, oh, hmm, this has a bit of a, a, a twist to it that I didn't see before. And I'm seeing online a lot of people bring this up with regards to this novel as well. We see Riker making some choices and some behaviors that some people might see as as questionable, kind of uh, pushing himself and and not taking no for an answer and that sort of thing. How did 
you guys react to this when you were reading? Did that jump out to you or was that something that didn't really come into effect for you? It didn't really come into that much effect to me. I would say that I did think about it a little bit because as certain scenes were playing out, I thought, oh, is this going to go a little too far or be a little too creepy? And I don't remember feeling that way the first time I read it or the first few times I read it back in the early 90s. But uh, I think what has happened in today's world and the Me Too, Me Too movement and such, um, I think did have that little seed in my head. But I also didn't feel like Riker went too far. I mean, I, I think he was being kind of a horn dog in a lot of ways and <laughs> just kind of, yeah, not taking no for an answer. But it wasn't that he was physically doing anything and taking not taking no for an answer. He was just you know, being a little persistent. And sometimes, you know, when you're interested in someone, you, you know, you ask once, but you may try again and you might ask again and you might ask again. When he showed up to the campus to track her down, I thought, you know, he was stalking her. It's a little creepy there too, but there's just something about her that he just, he couldn't get out of his mind and he just wanted to find her and he wanted to talk to her and he just really wanted to go out with her. And she really handled him very well. So, you know, major kudos to Deanna Troy for handling Riker. <laughs> so um, I, I don't know. It's one of those things that the subject is up now. I'd like to go back to those chapters and and reread those again. But I didn't feel like it was inappropriate. Yeah, this uh, sort of throwing me for a loop here. And I, I can see exactly what you're saying. And going back, it's like, yeah, I, I tend to agree more with Bruce because as I was reading it, I felt like, well, we know Riker is ambitious and he's driven and he's very self-confident. And, you know, if he sees something, he wants to go get it and, you know, be successful and do his best. And, you know, so when he sees Troy, like there is this automatic attraction and she Troy does handle it expertly which I agree with Bruce completely that she does handle the situation very, very well and takes his sexual desires and, and turns it into a deeper relationship. Cause I too think that she wanted that deeper relationship because she wanted to have, you know, this interaction with Riker. And so she was going to put it on her terms and so I think it shows her strength of that. He went in for a kiss and she rebuked him and he didn't do it again. So I sort of feel like, yeah, maybe going in for the kiss, but that's him, you know, chasing the girl. And I guess I don't know walking that line now is chasing the girl bad. Well, no, I don't think that he went too far. He tried, got shot down, tried a different tactic. You know, got shot down, tried a different tactic, you know, and that's that goes to Riker's character and his personality. Yeah, I didn't feel like he wasn't accepting no for an answer. He would accept no as an answer, but then come back later and just ask again. You mm -hmm. know, it's almost like, you know, mom, can I have a cookie? No, wait till after dinner. And then the kid comes back later, you know, half hour later. Can I have a cookie now? <laughs> you know? It's not like, can I have a cookie? No, no, I'm going to have this cookie. You're, you're giving me this cookie. <laughs> you know, I'm going to force this cookie in my mouth. Yeah, I, it was always an asking, I felt, an invitation. Okay. So yeah. what do you think, Dan? 
Um, I would tend to agree with you guys. I would, I think Riker displays a lot of immaturity in this novel at, at this stage in his life. I agree and I with think, that, yes. And hmm. I think like you guys said, Deanna handles him very well. And it also becomes very apparent that, you know, in the course of, of what's going on, Deanna is very attracted to him as well and is just kind of trying to redirect things in a different direction and come out on the other side with a more meaningful relationship than Riker was initially after. So I, I really feel like there's kind of a maturity difference here and Deanna kind of brings him up to her level in some ways and, you know, all for the better. And you combine immaturity with Riker's proclivities that we know he has from the next generation. You know, you're going to get some of this stuff that maybe in the lens of what's going on today looks bad. And if it was written today, maybe it would be written a little differently, um, possibly for the better. I'm not really to say, but, you know, I think in the, in the, at the time this was written, it makes a lot of sense for what we know of Riker and how his character developed. And just, this is also Peter David's writing style. If you've read any of the new frontier novels, there's a lot of these type of things that go even further. There's a lot of sexual relationships and pursuing someone and someone not being wanting pursued. And then that person wants to pursue that person back and that person's no longer interested. You know, there's all kinds of soap opera drama. Yeah. It's, it's very much a hallmark of Peter David's writing for sure. So yeah, some choices may have been made differently if it was written today, I think. Um, and some people may not respond well to what's in the novel, but I think it fits with Riker's character, personally. I I agree. (laughs) All right. So from there, we talked a little bit about uh, how Deanna handles Riker and how she kind of redirects things. One of the ways she does this is a very unorthodox method that she talks about as being a a method of therapy. Um, Riker then brings up this method to another psychologist, and he seems to think that that's probably not a really sanctioned clinical technique. But basically, she has the two of them get naked on the shores of a lake and spoon each other. And ostensibly, this is to test if he can spiritually connect with her as opposed to follow just a physical attraction to her. And this kind of leads them into this torrid relationship that they have on Beta Z. So what do we think about this relationship they've formed? How do we feel that they get together at this point? Are they are they a good match? I think, Amy, I might know your answer to this. <laughs> okay, so reading that and then having Riker try and confirm this therapy technique, <laughs> I was laughing. <laughs> like my brother, you know, I was reading it on the couch and I am laughing at this book and he's looking at me. I'm like, this is hilarious. That was so funny. Just a brilliant stroke of writing right there. Um, but he passes, right? He passes her test. And her thinking was spot on. Like she doesn't want this physical, this one night or however long he was stationed on their three month mission. You know, it's, she doesn't want that. And so to her, this is what made sense to her. And he passed and they did. He was able to get to know her better on a more spiritual level that they could connect, which sets them up for their amazing relationship. 
Would you say it's torrid? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it's a torrid relationship. I think yeah, it's wonderful. Not. Yeah, I was I was more thinking of like how quickly it was over, but I guess that's not really the right word for sure. It's it's a deep, meaningful spiritual relationship. For sure. Yeah. And and it is sad that it ends so quickly. Yeah, when she has him remove his clothes and she removes his and he doesn't really understand what's going on, and then she has him lay down and she behind him spoons him. You know, I like the scene. I like the message that it conveys because Riker quickly is in conversation with her and is connecting to her spiritually as opposed to physically i like how that works and i love then yeah when he finds out that's not really a real technique learned in school that she made that up but i think the scene would have felt a little more realistic if it wasn't maybe so family friendly because i guess what i'm trying to say is as much as he's interested in her and pursuing her if she like lays naked against him i think he would have a little more difficulty and struggle more with this concept a little longer than he did. Really? Because I felt like he did like when reading it, it was like he had, it was like paragraph of him trying to gain control, gain control. So I felt the struggle was real. Maybe because I feel like I would need more than a paragraph. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying that maybe because he just, I don't know. I mean, it's not that I have a problem with the scene. I'm just thinking how I just, maybe it just should have taken him a little longer or I don't want to say it would be harder for him. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was pretty hard. (laughs) But they didn't say that. No. No. And I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at. (laughs) Hmm. I mean, Dan, I want you to follow that comment. (laughs) It is still a Star Trek novel. I mean, you know. They're not gonna, but yeah, no, I I actually remember when I was first looking at this book on the shelf and I, I remember my mom or somebody saying, I don't know if you'll really like that one because I think she had the idea that it was like a romance novel set in the Star Trek universe or something like that. So, you know, it, it does look like it's not, well, I mean, not not in the way that we mean romance novel romance, when we say okay. romance novel. You know, like there's no picture of uh, of a Fabio with his shirt half open on the cover kind of thing. And I think right. she kind of thought maybe that's what this was. Um, but it is still a Star Trek novel and they're not going to really go down that path too far. But enough suggestiveness to, you know, kind of get us there, if that makes sense. So. Um, yeah, this, this was, I thought a funny scene, especially like Amy said, capped with the scene later where this, the other psychologist is like, that just sounds like it would probably lead to sex. I don't, I don't know that that sounds weird to me. (laughs) I thought that was really great. Kind of like an almost, uh, getting inside Troy's motivations and what she's thinking and that sort of thing. I thought it was kind of funny to see it from that side a little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah, so when we're reading this story because it's this flashback and and I love the setup that Admiral Riker is telling Captain Wesley Crusher. And so there were some times when I'm like is Admiral Riker still telling this 
part <laughs> to Crusher? Like, is he going into detail? You know, so there were some times where I was like, it's getting pretty steamy. I mean, and it's not by any means, you know. Wesley's like, a girl never did that with me. I, yeah, and I'm like, so <laughs> I, I was wondering, did did you ever feel that way you were reading or you just went back into this is, you know, the mode of how the story's being told and just forgot about Wesley? I, I did. Uh, I remember far into this backstory, at one point I had to stop and think, wait, wait, wasn't he, he was telling the story to someone who was it? And I was trying to remember where that came from. I was like, Oh wait, yeah, it was to Wesley Crusher in the future. Yeah. Okay. And they were on beta Z. It took me a while. Cause I thought it didn't feel like it would just be a flashback. Uh, he's telling a story that would just be in one or two chapters and we go back. I mean, this has gone on for quite a while that you start to forget. That's even a backstory that he's telling. And yeah, is he giving all this detail? I mean, I would think Wesley's going to be standing there going, Really? We've been standing here for like three hours and you're still going on about how you met Deanna. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I I kind of let that slide. I kind of forgot about that because it's, you know, just kind of the device to get us into the story. Right. Um, the, The one part that I do remember really thinking about him telling Wesley the story was when he was talking about how Deanna initially died and like that story that he's telling Wesley about I thought I kept thinking about him telling that story to Wesley because it would be so emotional and so heart-wrenching. So when it's something like that, I really kind of put myself in the place of the person who who's being told this story. So for that part, I really got into that. And then for the rest of this, I just kind of like, oh, it's just Riker's rememberings. Maybe he's not saying every bit of this to his audience. He's just remembering along as the story goes kind of thing. That's a good way to. Yeah, I, I was thinking it was okay. He's not telling Wesley all this, but the author's now using this as an opportunity to tell us. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit, I guess, about how Deanna died in the uh, time period where it's about season five of TNG. There's a few references that make you realize when this is taking place. Um, I think Riker mentions Wesley uh, doing his extra year at the Academy kind of thing. So that was after he caused or took part in that accident at Starfleet Academy in season five. So it kind of places it there. And we learn about the, the death of Deanna Troy and the cause at this point is kind of unknown. She basically is having a romantic liaison with Uh, visiting dignitary in her quarters and ends up dying and the cause like we said was kind of unknown what did you guys think of this and like this is this is really the moment that the rest of the novel centers around and we come back to it later in the novel as well but how did you feel about how that part of the story was told well it was interesting because we know right from the beginning that Luoxana just does not like Riker at all. Like just a hatred um, because she lost Deanna and she somehow blames Riker for it, you know? And, and then that was like, well, if it wasn't really for sure, then I didn't know why Luoxana had such difficult times with Riker 
that maybe, I don't know, she was blaming him for pushing her into Starfleet in her opinion. Like I was sort of trying to figure that out because if her death wasn't as known, like the exact cause and the exact purpose, like then how does Loxana blame Riker so specifically for that? Yeah, she's not always rational. So maybe it's just <laughs> the fact that she knows that Riker was there and she died in front of Riker. And she's just like, well, if anybody would try to save my daughter, it would be you. And you didn't even do that. What is yeah. wrong with you? <laughs> you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, well, we can't fix everything. But yeah, I, there was a part where I was not really understanding why was she blaming Riker on this. Oh, yeah. And I thought the same thing. Is it because she felt like Deanna went to Starfleet because of Riker? And so this wouldn't have happened to her if she hadn't gone. If she hadn't met Riker, she probably would have never joined Starfleet. Yeah, that was kind of my thinking as well that, you know, in Luxana's mind, she was, you know, chasing Riker into space kind of thing. And that's what drew her away from, you know, what would have been possibly a safe life on Beta Z, except when the Cinderine are attacking Beta Z, apparently. But besides that, you know, that because of the life that Deanna led, maybe Luxana blamed Riker for that. And that's kind of where I went with that. It's a little bit, you know, not directly, but it kind of makes sense in my head. And I love the backstory that we get with Luxana and Deanna because we see, you know, every time she comes on the Enterprise, Deanna just coils and, but we get that history and we learn like, Luxana had serious plans for her daughter. Like, you know, she was going to be married in this, you know, fifth house, fifth, fourth. Yeah, I should know this. Fifth house. Yeah, yeah the fifth house of chalice, da, 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 you know, <laughs> like royalty and obligation. And that Luxana really wanted that for Deanna. And it just adds so much more and seeing when she comes on the enterprise D that it's like, yeah, there is some big time history. And I love learning about that in this book here. I, I, I love learning that too. And I really enjoyed the fact that they were butting heads a lot. And one thing I want to point out real quick, because if anybody hasn't read the book or it's been a long time and you're listening to us, Deanna, it was clear that Deanna didn't join Starfleet because of Riker. Or she was chasing Riker. We're just saying that's what Luxana might think. Right. But she, she said that she had been thinking, she wanted to do her own thing. And Starfleet was one of the options she had been thinking about for quite a while. Mm-hmm. But And I um, mean, her father was a Starfleet officer too. So it's not, you know, it's not just Riker that's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which is a great point because we find out when they're butting heads and Loxana was like, you shouldn't be with that Riker and you should be doing this and blah, blah, blah. And I never would have spoke to my mother the way you're speaking to me. We find out in a later scene where Dana comes back home and Dana says to her mother, do you really not want to ever see me again or whatever? And she's like, no. And you know what? This kind of reminds me of how I did talk to my mother once and she didn't want me to run off and marry that human. And there was a really nice touching scene between the two of them. And it's one of my favorite scenes of the book because Mm -hmm. we got so much of, you know, Loxana just being Loxana and over dramatic and Troy like mother. And then we get this nice intimate scene between the two and they're really connecting. And I always love that about Loxana's character in the show is when she's gets to those personal 
real moments. It really grounds her character. And I've always loved that about the character. Well, and another thing that I like about that relationship that we see in the book, it's like Deanna, she does try to do it walks on his way. I mean, she pushes Riker away. She refuses to see him, you know, because she feels the obligation she understands and she has, you know, she doesn't want to disappoint her mother, but it comes full circle when she realizes she has to be who she is and not what her mother wants her to be. And, and that adds strength to Deanna's character as well, where it's like, okay, I'm going to do me mother. You are going to either support me. Do you want to see me? Do you want to be a part of my life? Please? I want you to, but that's your choice because I can't be who you want me to be. I have to be who I am. And again, that dynamic plays so perfectly between this mother-daughter relationship. It's it's very, very relatable for many mothers and daughters. Mm-hmm. Hi, Mom. <laughs> and I mean, that's one of the interesting things I think this book does with the characters and Waxana especially is, you know, a lot of times she's just played for laughs in the series But every once in a while, like Bruce said, there's just those grounding moments. I'm thinking the episode Half a Life or Dark Page, where she gets these really dramatic things to play. And when you get down to the core of the relationship between Waxana and Deanna, there's some really meaty stuff there. And there's a lot of depth. And Amy, like you said, very relatable for anybody who's had a kind of strained relationship like that with their parents where, you know, their parents have expectations and have a path laid out for uh, somebody who might not be suited to that path and does not want to follow that path at all. And there's some great stuff in this novel with that. Absolutely. So in this past here as well, we should say that Beta Z gets attacked by the Cinderine and the Cinderine kind of play a role throughout the entire story because the event where Deanna is killed in the quote unquote present that has to do with peace negotiations with the Cinderine as well. So I was totally, and I should say we're probably way past the point where we should say there's spoilers now, but be warned there's spoilers. We're going to be spoiling the end of the book now. Uh, I was really surprised there was no direct connection between the guy that kidnapped Deanna in the past part of the story and what happened to her in the present. I was totally expecting, and like I said, this is the third time I've read this novel, and I still forgot that this wasn't the case, because he gets kind of sunk into like quicksand, basically. I thought somehow he escaped and like plotted his revenge and that's what happened, but that's not what happened at all. So did anybody else expect that or was that just me? Uh, I didn't expect it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, you're, I'm listening to you. I'm like, gosh, no, maybe I should have been more creative in my thinking. <laughs> no, I think what it is, is Peter David was more creative and didn't take what was probably just a really obvious route that like would be really boring, which is what popped into my head. So it's probably better that the book didn't go that route because I was like, oh, yeah, it's going to be. A re- oh, wait, it's not. Never mind. <laughs> well, they were in the Jalara jungle and the guy died, I guess, in the mud pit. So I didn't expect anything more to play with that. I think it I felt like it was just a setup where Riker 
rescues the damsel in distress type of story. And then they spend all this time taking three or four days to get back to anybody through the jungle because now they're making out and hanging out and all this stuff in the jungle, which I'm thinking (laughs) they need to smell and they're probably itchy from all this laying around in flowers and grass. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're probably disgusting (laughs) by the time they get back to the camp or wherever they were going. (laughs) I kind of wondered about that because they talk about, making several stops on the way back uh, for recreational activities. And I'm like, there's no showers and they're walking in a hot, steamy jungle. Yeah. That's how I always feel when I watch survivor. And when there's couples that get together, I'm like, gross. And even my wife will say they haven't brushed their teeth in 25 days. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. That's, that's something to think about for sure. But then I thought it was really weird because when they finally get to camp, they're like, oh, it took you long enough. We were watching you the whole time. You know, we had surveillance because we had to get, you know, make sure you were okay. And I was like, ew. (laughs) Yeah, that was kind of weird. Yeah, it sort of made me think of like sometimes when the James Bond movies end and you see like the heat signatures and they're all, you know, lying down together. And I was like, they're being spied on. No, no, let's not do that. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit lack of privacy for sure, which is unfortunate. So back in the present, uh, when Deanna is killed, it turns out what happened was this is again with the Cinderine and their, their peace negotiations between the Cinderine and a number of other powers And it turns out that they were being disingenuous and were actually just stalling to kind of rebuild their armies and, you know, all this stuff. And they were worried that Deanna would figure that out because she's an empath. So they decided to take her out of the picture Uh, or so Riker discovers in the future, which leads him to make the fateful decision to use the Guardian of Forever which of course is that big donut shaped time portal from the city on the edge of forever to go back in time. This is Admiral Riker from the future to go back in time to season five of TNG approximately and prevent Troy's death from these Cinderine assassins. So this, this is where, you know, we get the real like crux of the story and the, the, what's going to set everything right kind of thing. Did you guys, what what did you guys think of his decision here? Was it based on irrationality or was he thinking really clearly? What do you think's going on in Riker's mind here? I don't think he was thinking real clear. Um, I mean, the fact that he go, you know, so data Commodore data tells Riker what he saw at the guardian forever, that there was this other timeline where Deanna still lived and he had to rush and he, you know, he knows he's not supposed to go there and change time, but he's going to do it. He has no idea what this other timeline is at the, you know, at this point in star Trek in the 24th century, they know that there's alternate timelines. I mean, if data were to tell him, Hey, I was staying at the guardian of forever. And I saw a timeline. That's the mirror universe is Riker going to say, well, I'm going to go and change that. You know, I mean, just because you see a timeline where Diana was living, doesn't mean that the timeline was disrupted or changed. You know, that's kind of where I was thinking that. So I felt like it was just more of this emotional 
because he's so broken and everything that he's just so desperate, you know, but then when he gets there, he kind of finds out that the timeline was changed. So it makes more sense that he's like, look, I, it, it seems to me that something happened that what we're in now wasn't supposed to happen. Somebody went back and changed the timeline. I didn't really feel like there was very good concrete proof of that. It was seemed more speculation from Riker's part. So that's where I had a problem. But of course it all resolved itself later. We find out that's what, did indeed happen so it's fine but it seemed irrational to me at the time that Riker would do this well I don't know if it was irrational I think it was emotional and I think he was like I don't want to live in a time you know because he is reflecting on his life on this station and how his decisions are pointless and who cares if we get the paperwork late Starfleet you know I'm here insignificant. And, you know, and then when he's talking to Wesley, he's like, gosh, I, why am I even here? My life is nothing without Troy and just sort of in this downward spiral. And so I think these emotions overcame him and it's like, I would rather not be alive and I would rather be with her. And so I'm going to go and we happened to find out that, you know, the timeline was, you know, altered. And so he is justified in doing so. So we don't really hate him for it. <laughs> but is that really a good Starfleet officer, though? He's so broken that at this point, what does it matter? Yeah, but you could say the same thing of Soren in Generations. He's so broken that, you know, what does it matter if he you know, destroys a planet or whatever. He's just so emotional. I mean, I guess what I'm saying, that's the same logic you would apply to a, a villain in the story. A villain's yeah. doing something like that because it's an emotional response and not caring what anybody, how this affects anybody else's life or their future. Well, I guess he's thinking, you know, I'm insignificant in this time period, in this, you know, parallel universe. In my time, if I die... They're just going to send another admiral to take my place, Starbase. There's nothing really for him there. And so he's thinking it's not going to change the, his quote-unquote present timeline. I find it interesting, too, that this is a conflict that we see in other Star Treks later on as well. Like, uh, for example, I think of the Voyager episode Timeless, you know, to Captain LaForge of the Challenger Chakotay and Kim are criminals who are going to erase history because they want to save the Voyager crew. And, you know, to Data in this novel, Riker is a criminal because he wants to change the past. Now, I think Riker had kind of figured out a little bit, maybe like you said, not concrete proof, but enough suspicion that someone had already come from the future and changed the past because I think the the poison that was used hadn't yet been developed by that time or something like that. So he was like, oh, it came from the future. So it was time travel that set this all in motion. So I need to set it right. I feel like if he'd have spent a little bit more time explaining that to other people, he might not have been chased as badly. But then again, he had to get through the Guardian as fast as possible before people realized what he was doing as well. So... You know, there's there's definitely some impetuousness and, and, and emotionality there. But at the same time, I think it was kind of an educated guess. He he had a strong suspicion that this was the case. And and I yes, and you're right. And I, I think that data 
would have had that guess too, you know, mm-hmm. because Data was wit- uh, witness to a lot of what Riker saw in The Guardian. But Data didn't see that. Data didn't come to yeah, that conclusion. That's true. I think what I would have liked better, we had a, a nice scene later in the book between Picard and Guinan. And uh, I think what I would have liked is maybe when Data informed Riker about what he saw at the Guardian, that maybe when Riker gets on the Enterprise or maybe on the space station Riker's out or something, he has a run-in with Guinan and is talking to Guinan. It's like, you know, Data saw this. And we're in guy. It would have been great if Guinan would have indicated, like, yeah, I I get the sense, like, I've always felt that Deanna should have been around, like she shouldn't have died at that time, you know, something like that, where it's almost like yesterday's Enterprise. It's that same thing of Guinan's indicating, like, this isn't maybe the correct timeline, and then Riker goes to the Guardian planet. It gives him more reason to think something's up, and then he witnesses what he witnesses, and it's all just starting to add up. So I wanted to ask, and I found another just sort of weird connection, sort of like with all good things. Like, so at the very beginning, we have Commodore Data and he sees the Guardian of Forever and he asks to go inside with that lady and he reaches out and he wants to touch the Guardian. And it just took me right back to first contact where Picard was looking at the Phoenix and And then it was like, well, why is Data asking Picard, does touching that make it more real to you? And, you know, that whole dialogue that they had at first contact. And then I was reading this and I'm like, well, why would Data even think to touch it? So it just sort of was a disconnect for me because I knew first contact. And I was like, oh, that's sort of weird. Well, it's because he had that conversation with Picard, you know, years earlier. And he's remembering that and he's like, oh, I want to touch this. And he actually got to touch it for longer because Deanna wasn't there to pop her head up and say, would you three like to be alone? alone? (laughs) (laughs) No, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I love that these themes kind of come up, you know, different writers kind of have these ideas and I don't know, like the whole Admiral Riker and Deanna being dead and just a scene with Data touching something to gain a deeper understanding I, that book was cool. written before, way before. First exactly. Contact. That's what that's I mean. So like cool. yeah. these different authors, different writers coming up with, you know, similar ideas. It's, yeah. It just shows how well these writers know the characters, which is really yes. cool. Well, I think this would be a good time for me to bring up something that I wanted to, to discuss. Uh, and what I like about this book now, when I first read it was during the original airings of TNG. And now I'm reading it at this point where TNG has been over. We've had the movies and the other series and such. And I think it's interesting how uh, the, the future that we see in this does play out differently because now we know at this point where the future of TNG goes, where when I first read this book, I didn't. So in other words, what I'm saying is this is 40 years after her death Data is a Commodore while Data dies. So really, Deanna's death gave Data life to continue Mm. on for years. But now that she lives, Data dies. Oh, wow. See, now what's really interesting is if you take that even further, and I kind of brought in like the novel verse. So for part of this book, I was thinking because Data's been resurrected in the novels, but he looks different and he's more human. 
And we know in this novel that Data's using contractions and all this kind of stuff and, you know, touching Guardians of Forever. I was like, is this the, you know, human looking Dr. Noonien Sung android body data that comes along? And I was like, that's kind of cool. It almost kind of fits. And then if you're, if you know, like the Star Trek online version of the Enterprise F, suddenly I I can picture Data's ship, the Enterprise F in my head, as being that ship from Star Trek Online. So, you know, as things come out and as things are written and created, you can just fill in little pieces of this book and create a more coherent picture of the universe. It's no, kind of absolutely. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking the same types of things. And, and the fact that Wesley, we know, uh, becomes a traveler, but in this timeline, he doesn't. So... Deanna's death prevents Wesley from being traveler. Instead, he becomes a captain in Starfleet. Also, what I really liked how this book works with Insurrection and Nemesis is the fact that Deanna and Riker never really solidify their relationship. They never come together until we get to the movie Insurrection. And I like to think that movie takes them back to memories of the time when they were together that we saw in this book to their youth. We saw them in their youth. And this was now a reminder of what things were, which now led them to get married. My mind is blown. You guys are just (laughs) making me so happy. This is amazing. I love this. Awesome. I was always kind of sad, especially reading it this time around I was kind of sad that it took place when it did, because I feel like if this novel had been written around the time, you know, Insurrection and Nemesis were coming out, the timing of it would have been so cool that they go through this and Riker realizes, you know, Riker and Troy realize what they're missing. And then that leads into like Nemesis and them getting married and that kind of that sort of thing, because where it is in the middle of the series, it's almost unfortunate that you kind of don't really get the payoff at the end that you think you would expect because, you know, at this time, the novel writers just had to kind of put the pieces back the way they were. So the natural outcome would be Riker and Troy realize what would happen if they didn't get together and what they're missing out on and they get together or they decide to try it or something. But instead it's like, well, maybe someday We'll we'll have to keep this in mind. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. It's almost like okay. Well, yeah, we're we're reminded that may, maybe we maybe we should get together. I don't know when the timing is right someday. But instead, what happens is she gets with Worf. Yeah, which is kind of weird. <laughs> in a parallel time, and in the main one too. In all good things, she and Worf are together. I know, and I like that too. <laughs> so let me ask you, Amy, real quick. Worf or Riker? You can't do that to me. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, I wasn't expecting that. Me either. I thought you would say Riker, of course. No, I really do like Troy with Worf. I really do. It works for me. I know so many people it doesn't. But to me, it just really works. And... And Riker too. So I'm I'm saying both. You're just all about Troy keeping her options open and Yeah. That's right. I like it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I, I guess, you know, there's a few other um things at play towards the end of the book that we could probably talk about. Uh we've got um 
some interesting stuff with Barclay. It's like some kind of typical Peter David humorous writing here. And uh, we've got data stalking the Enterprise, the future data, going back in time following Riker to try and kill Troy to set the timeline back to what turns out to be the wrong timeline. Um, I guess just any other elements you guys want to talk about with regards to the end of this novel? Yes. We have to talk about what made me cry. Ah, okay. Yes, Amy and I were talking about this the other night. We had dinner. <laughs> it, I, it took me by surprise because I was just reading and the way that they have Admiral Riker, this, you know, coming back and seeing Troy for the first time, like it was such a beautiful moment, so emotional. Like I seriously tears down my cheeks. They were coming and I had, I really had to just stop because I was so overcome with all the emotions of knowing what Admiral or yeah, Admiral Riker had gone through and all of his memories and how fondly he thought of it and his life of what it was and how insignificant it was. And he sees Deanna like it affected me so much more. I don't remember being this affected by that scene when I read it the first time. I, I really, really don't. But it really hit me quite hard. And just to know that the love that he had for her and and that he missed out on that opportunity. Like it was pity, it was love, it was joy that he got to see her again. It it was really, really good. Yeah, and Amy and I were talking about this the other day and she said, you know, did you get emotional? And I started to say which part we're we're both like, Yep, that's the part. And I said, but I she goes, Did you cry? I'm like, well, I was on a plane. Like <laughs> but I did feel a little you know, teary-eyed, you know, I started to tear up at it, especially, you know, the descriptions of, I mean, he's so, you know, here's this anguished, bitter man. And it's just so upset. He's lost his love. And now he saved her. And there she is standing there the way he remembered her the last time he saw her. And it's been 40 years. And then he even reaches out with his hands to her face, but doesn't touch yeah. her. Yeah right away oh yeah, that, that that moment was brutal yeah yeah just the whole writing of that that whole scene how it just plays out and you just feel it and then there's the young version of himself just standing there watching this you know mm -hmm. if that doesn't get you come on will you need to ask deanna out but <laughs> i mean that's really what older will is saying to younger will don't miss out on the opportunities and his younger self still doesn't listen which i think is funny too because the older version was treating younger version like he's an idiot Mm -hmm. at certain times and stuff yeah. but my other favorite parts were uh barkley and you know seeing the will Riker on the holodeck and data running with his head and and all this and he passes out i mean th those are just hilarious scenes so you had these scenes going back and forth of action humor and emotion in in typical i would say peter david style like it's kind of you know all his novels kind of end with everything going off the rails, but also being very poignant and emotional. I think like Q squared, for example, the entire last quarter of that book is crazy nuts, but also just really moving. 
with this one, like you guys are talking about that situation, I feel like reading that when I was in high school, right over my head. Like I was the younger Riker in that, like whatever, you know, okay. You know, what? And then I'm not even, I'm probably about the same age that the younger Riker is in the novel. You know, I'm not, I'm not old or anything, but it's 20 years after high school that I read that. And it does have more meaning to me now, you know, looking back on it and realizing, you know, we do have a limited time and we have to seize those moments and those opportunities when they come up because the regret of roads not taken is huge. And I'm not even close to being in the position of, of being in the old Will Riker's shoes, but I still am closer to that and, and understand that a bit better now. I'm closer to being the older Riker now. Nah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, and Dan, for you, it's, it is different because you are older and you also are now a man in love and you just got engaged. I did. I, yeah, just recently. So I seized that moment. (laughs) (laughs) You listened to the older Riker. (laughs) I did. I, I, I decided to do that way before I read that. And in fact, actually, I think I proposed before I'd finished reading the book this time around. Although I would have really loved it if you came onto the show and said, you know what, after I read this book, I realized I was ready to propose to my girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that that would make for a better narrative. It's just not the truth. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure she prefers the way it actually happened. (laughs) I think so too. (laughs) Well, in our head canon, that's the way it is on literary tracks, so. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> well, on that note, um, why don't we share our final thoughts and ratings for Imzadi? Uh, Amy, why don't you lead us off? Okay. I'm just going to say that this book is so well written, you get sucked in right at the beginning And it's got everything like you were talking about, like time travel, emotion, this regret, this amazing love, this chance of meeting and and the chase and it's just everything. So much of this book and it's so impactful and the characters and the relationships that we get and the backstory that like you guys mentioned just builds exactly the universe that is on screen and so how it does and it just dances in between these seasons and the future and the past and uh, it's truly amazing and I loved it when I first read it and I just love it even more reading it again Uh, so listeners if you haven't read it recently please read it again it is so so good so good um ratings This one, for sure, I think I have been a little hesitant, but this one, I'm just going five out of five, just completely hook, line, sinker. Absolutely loved it. Excellent. And Bruce? Well, this being my fourth time into the story, I think says a lot. Uh, And I was really interested to see if it would still hold up for me, and it did. Uh, I really... Yeah, I enjoyed it. I think it is a Star Trek classic. Uh, If you've never read a Star Trek book or very few and you like TNG, I highly recommend this is the one that you read. Um, Especially, again, if you like Troy and Riker, if you like that relationship. 
but it's it, it is it's it's a lot of fun there's a lot of emotion it's it's not a romance novel but there is romantic uh elements to it there's action to it there's fun to it there's space yeah it's like everything you want from star trek is all into this you know and we have the guardian of forever i mean that's that's always fun to see which i've enjoyed reading that because just recently i read the uh the uh graphic novel of the original harlan ellison script uh teleplay for guardian so it was fun going back to the guardian again after reading that but uh yeah i also like amy will give this uh five out of five data heads rolling around <laughs> excellent yeah this uh i i think even just for its place in the history of star trek novels i think this deserves recognition it's really peter david at his finest his style of writing there are people out there that don't like peter david's style and there are a lot of people that love it and i generally love it he's kind of in top form here like you say he's got the character relationships down really well but also the action and the fun science fiction elements you've got time travel and all that ridiculous stuff that happens in you know the last fifth of a peter david novel that's all there as well again it's it's a novel written in a slightly different time so you know some people might twig onto those elements uh but if you can get past that it's an amazing story i gave it five out of five when i first read it and i think i've got to give it five out of five as well this time so i'm going to give it five out of five late reports that Riker hasn't sent on to starfleet yet <laughs> that's great <laughs> you know i just uh spoke with peter david about a year ago and i've met him before and stuff and he is definitely one of my favorite star trek authors and there's just times i was reading this especially those touching moments and i was like i would never like think of that guy as being so emotional and so in touch with feelings that the next time i see him i almost want to say you really do have some deep feelings, don't you, Peter? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'll love that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Amy, uh, where can people follow you if they want to find out what you're doing here on the network or elsewhere? Well, you can find me right here on the network where I co-host Earl Gray. Surprise, surprise. It's about next generation. Uh, with my good friends, Richard and Justin. I am also co-hosting The Edge and Postcards from The Edge, which is about the wonderful Star Trek Discovery starting season two very soon. And I do that with Patrick Devlin. You can find me on the Fandom Podcast Network, where I podcast about the Orville and Discovery. It's called Discoville. Uh, with my good friends Haley Stoddart, Kyle Wagner, and Kevin Reitzel. You can find me on Twitter, at Miss Amy Nelson. But my favorite place is right there in the Babel Conference. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We always love having you. Oh, my gosh. It was a real treat. Uh, absolutely love talking with you guys, and especially about Troy. <laughs> well, of course, we had to have you for that. Yes. So thank you. Especially since you dress like her at STLV. Yes. Season one, Troy. <laughs> Rockin' the scant. I have to admit that 
I finished reading Imzadi about two days ago, no, three days ago. And ever since then, I've been thinking, I can't wait to talk. I can't wait to talk about this book. I can't wait to talk about this book. And I mean, like that a lot of times when we read the books, but for this one, it was different because this is a favorite from way back when for me. And I don't know if I've really ever discussed this book. So after all these years, roughly 25 years, I finally got to actually like talk about this book with someone. So it was a lot of fun. That's cool. And yeah, it's one of the special ones. So, you know, we went a little bit longer in our discussion today, but I think it's a book that really deserves that. You know, there's a few novels throughout the history of of Star Trek novels that are just a little bit special. And I think this is definitely one of those. And I'm really glad that we got the opportunity to talk about it because this was a lot of fun. Well, it's been fun talking about Riker and Troy today and their various shenanigans, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM. To the journey! Praise for a bit, yes. <laughs> okay, if... Uh... I, I, I'm going to make a commitment to myself right now. If I am ever perishing in a plane crash, I am going to say brace for impact right before I die to everyone on the plane. I will brace somehow for hear it across the miles. It'll be very dramatic, you know, with some dramatic theme music playing, hopefully, just like we have in Voyager here this episode. Earl Grey. That's terrible. Wow. Like, why would someone think that? I mean, if it's going to infect <laughs> this entire world of Ferengi, you've got to assume that there's going to be visitors or whatever, and that it's just going to spread yeah, everywhere. Spread that everywhere. doesn't even make sense. Doesn't, doesn't sound like a good plan. No, to me. it does not. Literary treks. Both Bound and myself like Star Trek stories that work as uh, some kind of a parable that uh, hold up the mirror to modern times. And when we got the assignment that we could actually write the Prometheus trilogy, we were pretty sure that we wanted to do something contemporary with it, that we wanted to put modern day into a science fiction story. And the biggest problem that we saw at the time was terrorism. Melodic treks. You know, I suppose as being an actor, you know, I just was really kind of feeling into Clive's character and and trying to express the emotion of what I felt like he was going through on the Sarangi. Mm -hmm. So then it became much more of a personal, individual character. It was how I experienced doing it. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. Or you can go back into the past and listen to them if you go through The Guardian of Forever. But please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, well, we get you covered as well. You can find all of our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. 
Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways that you can do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can do that by using the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that email will come right to us. And you can also find the network on Twitter, at trek.fm, and on Facebook, at facebook.com slash trek.fm. But that's not the only place that you can find Literary Treks. We're also active on Goodreads, where we have a group with all of our bookshelves, with previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus, there are always great conversations happening about the books and comics. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads.com and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chemutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not looking at yourself in the mirror, having just gotten ready for a Betazoid wedding, where can we find you? Well, you can find me at Macy's looking for clothes so that I can wear something (laughs) over this birthday suit. And you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me here on the network doing live from the edge with Brandy Jackala. And that is our live show where uh, it's on YouTube and then release later as a podcast the night after each premiere of a Discovery episode. And you can find me on the Star Wars Report podcast talking about Star Wars. And of course, you can also find me in our Goodreads group where we've been discussing Imzadi before the recording of this episode. And you can find me in the Babel Conference. So Dan, when you're not walking through and rolling around through the Jarla jungle. Where can people find you? Well, you got to watch out for the brambles and stuff. They, they kind of poke you in places you don't want to be poked, but when that's not happening, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K E R T R A T S. You can find me on YouTube where I have a channel talking mostly about Star Trek at youtube.com slash Kurtrats productions. You can also find me on facebook.com slash Productions and in the Babel Conference talking about Star Trek and on my website at treklet.com talking about Star Trek books, both old and new. Well, thank you everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.